Bibles now, if you would, to Revelation chapter 9. Tonight, as we continue our study in Revelation, we're looking into the most frightening period of all of the world's history. There have been times in the history of the world, certainly, that are dark and ominous, and there's no way that I wanted, would want to have lived in those times in the past. I uh, think about the Dark Ages and about the absence of science and technology in that time, and there was much religious persecution during the Dark Ages. There were diseases that killed a large numbers of the world's population. There was gross ignorance about what to do about those diseases, and sometimes the cures that they proposed were worse than the diseases themselves and actually helped spread the disease that they were trying to stamp out. And then I'm not sure that I would even want to live in the time that Jesus lived or even to have lived in Palestine at the time that Jesus was there. I mean, as attractive as it might be to think about uh, walking in the same place and talking to people who knew Jesus, being there at the same time. Yet I'm not sure that I want to live then because those were very tough times. I don't know if I could live without air conditioning and McDonald's and superhighways and Dell computers and things like that. I'm not sure I'd want to live in a world like that. But one thing I do know for sure, I absolutely would not want to live in the times that we're talking about tonight. I don't want to live on this earth in the times of after Jesus comes back. And it's really amazing to me that people become interested in things like the occult. They get interested in Ouija boards and tarot cards, astrology, all kinds of evil things, demonology. They get interested in all these things that come straight out of the pit of hell. And those are really frightening things. And if we would just read the Word of God and see what it says here and what the Scriptures have to say about evil things, about demons and about Satan, what that's really all about, we would learn very quickly that it's not something that we want to trifle with. We don't want to dabble in those kinds of things because as intriguing and as interesting as it might be, the devil and his angels and all these demons, they are not the friend of man. They only have one thing in mind, and that is how they can destroy a person's soul eternally. Now this evening we're looking into the seventh seal, the opening of the seventh seal on Redemption Scroll, and we're studying what is called the trumpet judgments. In the beginning of chapter 8, we saw there that there were... Uh, seven angels that were in the presence of God, and each one of them was handed a trumpet to sound. And when those trumpets sound, there's a new wave of judgment that comes upon the earth. Now, these trumpets are also the calling of God's people. It's the way that God is going to conquer this world, how he's going to gather things back to himself, how he's going to purge the world. And it begins with God defeating all of his enemies... And first, I'm speaking about men. He defeats men who are his enemies. And then God also defeats Satan. And he defeats those evil angels that have stood against him since almost the beginning of time. So tonight, we're beginning with verse number 13 in its ninth chapter, which is the sounding of the sixth trumpet. You can stand with me, please, as we read God's word. Revelation chapter 9, we begin at verse number 13. And the sixth angel sounded... And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand 
and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, and of jacinth, and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire, and smoke, and brimstone. By these three was a third part of men killed, by the fire, and by the smoke, and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth, and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents, and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor their fornications, nor of their thefts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each one who's come out tonight. We just ask you, Lord, as we study your word here in Revelation, that you would open up this to our minds and to our hearts, and may we really see what terrible times that these will be and how we need to warn people of the time that's coming. Bless in the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the message last week, the fifth trumpet sounded. The angel blew his trumpet, and there were judgments that came, but they were not judgments upon the physical planet. That judgment was intended to be upon those who dwell on the earth. It was a judgment against men. Now, Satan, who is Lucifer, was given the key to the bottomless pit, and when he opened that pit, there was a vast horde of demons that rose out of the pit and went throughout all of the earth like a plague of locusts. Only these were much worse than locusts because they had stingers like scorpions, and they were able to inflict a pain upon men that was so excruciating that men would cry out for death. But there was no death because it wasn't God's intention to kill these men, but that they should suffer. And so these evil angels that were let loose could not kill men upon the earth, but they would torture men for the period of five months. They would seek death, but death would not come. Now, in the 13th verse, we see that the sixth angel sounds his trumpet. In verse 13, it says, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now, the first thing that we want to notice about that verse is the altar. There was a voice that came from the four horns of the golden altar. And that's the altar that we discussed a couple of three weeks ago that was represented by the altar of incense that was in the tabernacle. It was that altar that sat right in front of the curtain there before the Holy of Holies. And it was a, an altar of incense, an altar of prayer. And that's what it stood for. It stood for the prayers of the saints. So the priest would come and he would burn incense upon that altar. And the proximity of that altar to the throne of God... Uh, represented there by the Ark of the Covenant that was behind that curtain of the Holy of Holies, the proximity of that to that place tells us that the prayers of God's people always go up before him and that God is always interested in those prayers. And then we notice here that the Word says that there were horns that were on this altar. As we go through the book of Revelation, we'll see that horns represent power. And so the horns of the altar tell us that power, or that prayer rather, is a very powerful thing. Prayer is the thing that God uses to carry out his will. And when the prayers of God's saints go up before him, that's what moves God into action for us. It's not that we're 
God is forced into action because we pray, but simply because that is the means that God has ordained that his work should come about, that God's people should pray for these things. And so prayer begins God's movement on our behalf. Well, there was a second altar that was in the tabernacle worship, and this was called the brazen altar. That's the place where sacrifices were made. The animals were brought to that altar. They were slaughtered, and then the blood of that uh, sacrifice was collected. The sacrifice was burned upon the altar, and that burning was a type of God's judgment against sin. That brazen altar is a picture of the cross of Christ, because on the cross is where Jesus took the judgment of our sins. Our sins were placed upon him. So that Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 24, who's, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. So that brazen altar represented the cross of Christ where the judgment of God was poured out. And that's what the burning of the sacrifice was about. But then the priest would take the blood that was collected at that altar and he would take it into the tabernacle and he would put that blood on the horns of the altar of incense. Now we have a picture of that tonight where the priest is putting the blood on that altar of incense. And what that tells us, since the altar of incense is a place of prayer, it tells us that no one has the right to come into the presence of God without the blood, without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm often asked a question, does God hear the prayers of lost people? And my answer to that question is no. Lost people can pray for anything that they like, but God does not hear, God does not answer their prayers because they do not come under the blood. They don't come with the sacrifice of Christ's blood, and without that blood, we have no right to come into the presence of God. And so the only prayer that's ever heard of a sinner is the prayer just like that publican prayed when he stood and he beat upon his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the only reason that a lost person could even pray that prayer is because God has put it in his heart to understand that he is lost, he's depraved, he has no right to come to God, and so all that he can do is plead God's mercy against his judgment. And so that's the only reason that any sinner could ever expect a prayer to be heard if it is a prayer that states that he is a sinner and he comes into the presence of God that way. So other than that, there is no prayer unless it's enabled by the Holy Spirit. There is no prayer of any unredeemed sinner that comes before God and is answered. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that people like Muslims who go and pray five times a day They're wasting their time because God does not hear. It also means that the Jews who rock back and forth and wear their prayer shawls and recite the Torah at the Western Wall in their prayers there, they're not heard by God because they have rejected the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so they don't have the right to come into his presence. So the blood on the horns of the altar are a vivid picture that prayer and worship can only be offered to God on the basis of an atoning sacrifice. It's the blood that appeases God. We call that propitiation. Jesus propitiated God. He appeased God. He satisfied God by the sacrifice of his own blood. And the blood then is the only reason why any person can come into God's presence. Now let's notice something about this altar there, is that prayers are ended and the penalties begin. 
You see, the altar was a place of intercession. It was a place to ask forgiveness. That's a place for uh, people to thank God, to worship Him for all of His mercies that He gives towards us. It's a place where they would come to implore God's mercy to be upon them. But do you remember that things changed? We saw that back in the 8th chapter, that things changed. Because when the seventh seal was opened, that altar of mercy became an altar of judgment. And so there are no longer prayers of mercy that are offered upon that altar. Instead, there's a different type of prayer. There, there is an imprecatory prayer. That's a prayer for judgment. It's a prayer for vengeance. And those prayers that were made there have been heard by God. And so now there's no use praying at this altar any longer. The, the prayer time is over because now God grants that request. Now judgment comes upon the men of the earth. Now next week we notice the angels. He says, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now folks, what we're dealing with here is the supernatural. I mean, this, there's an unseen world of darkness that's out there We can't detect it. We don't have spiritual receptors in in this physical body in order to detect this world that's all around us. Right here in the room tonight, there are angels. I'm sure that there are demons. There's a cosmic struggle that's going on at this very hour. And only God knows what that's all about. God controls all of that. And so we can't see it. And there's many things that, mysterious things that God is doing that we just don't even know about. Well, here is something to me that's very interesting because it talks about four angels that are bound in the Euphrates River. Right now, those angels are there. Those are evil angels because God has no need to restrain the holy elect angels. But these are evil angels that have been bound up in the river Euphrates. So if you were to travel to the area of Iraq where our soldiers are fighting today... You could go to the Euphrates River. You could jump in the river. You could dive down and go as deep as you want to go. And you wouldn't find these angels. You wouldn't see them. But they're there nonetheless. And they've been there since the time that God chained them up and put them there. He made it so that they can't move. They can't get out because he's preparing for them. Preparing a time for them. God has prepared these angels. That's the next thing we see here. They're prepared for a a specific purpose. Verse number 15 says, And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year. Prepared for an hour, a month, and a day and a year. And that tells us that God knows the exact time that God is going to call them up and turn them loose. And God's going to use those evil angels. He knows the exact time because everything is under his control. Now, sometimes... We look at what's going on in the world around us. We see what's happening and we think, well, it must be Satan who's in control of everything. God's lost his way or or God doesn't know what he's doing. We see all the evil that goes on in the world and people ask those questions all the time. Why is there so much evil? Why is all this taking place? One thing we need to know is that God is always in control. He is the sovereign God. There is not one minute. There is not one hour. There's not one uh, month, one, one year even going backwards down to the very minutest detail, even one second, that God doesn't know about and God doesn't control. He does it all. And so certainly he knows what Satan is doing. He directs everything that goes on in this universe. There's not one person, there's not one place or one time that is not under God's control. And so that is an amazing thing to me, that there are people who preach from pulpits and they will 
preach like salvation is a crapshoot. They'll, they'll preach with the audacity to say that man's will is so free and God has granted man his will so that he's helpless. God is helpless to make any determinations in the life of man. But the Bible says that God works the hour, the day, the month, and the year. He works every single detail of the universe. And how much more in his sovereignty does he work the time out for the salvation of every soul that comes to him? So why are these angels bound up in the Euphrates River? Why that particular spot? You know, I don't know the exact answer to that, but I think there are some things that we can consider. What about this particular spot? Well, first, where did sin begin? If you look in the Old Testament, you'll find that the Garden of Eden was located near this place. Take your Bible there and turn over to Genesis chapter 2 for just a minute. And we have a description here of the location of the Garden of Eden. This is in Genesis chapter 2, and I'll start reading at verse number 10. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is, which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There's Delium and onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hidekel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So here is where the Garden of Eden was located. Here is where sin began when Adam was tempted by the devil, that old serpent called Lucifer. Then the Euphrates River is also the place where ancient Babylon stood. And in Scripture, uh, Babylon always represents the wickedness and the sinfulness of man. It was there that Nimrod began to build that great tower and to proclaim himself as, as someone to be worshipped. We find that in Genesis chapter 10, beginning at verse number 8. It says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherewith it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That's the first mention in the Bible of a kingdom. And the reason that it's put in this place is to indicate that men began to build their kingdoms in opposition to God's kingdom. So this kingdom that Nimrod started with the Tower of Babel, that was the beginning of Assyria and Babylon. That's also the place where the children of Israel were taken as captives. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 137, verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. And that's when the children of Israel were carried away into captivity. And it's speaking of the river there. And the river is the river Euphrates. It ran through the city of Babylon. Babylon is also the place where King Nebuchadnezzar reared up that golden altar. And he told the Hebrew children that they must bow down to that altar. And of course, when they didn't, Nebuchadnezzar had them thrown into the fiery furnace. And you remember the story where we read there that they were delivered by the fourth man who was walking in the fire, and that was none other than the Son of God. And it was also in Babylon by the Euphrates River that Nebuchadnezzar lifted up his heart in pride. 
We read about this in Daniel chapter 4. It says, The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers." and his nails like bird's claws. So the Euphrates River is the scene of much wickedness upon the earth, and perhaps that's the reason why God decided this is the place where he would bind up these angels. Now let's notice what they do. This is back in Revelation now, chapter 9, verse 15. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. And I heard the number of them. So next we see then the army. These four angels are commanders of an immense army. An army that's greater than the world has ever seen. And when Satan opened that pit of the abyss and under the sounding of that fifth trumpet and, and when those evil angels came out, there was a specific command to them that they were not to hurt the men on the earth. We just said that a moment ago. They could hurt, but they couldn't kill. But here we have a different army, and it comes forth with different marching orders. This time, they are commanded to kill one-third of the earth's population. Back in chapter 6, when the fourth seal was opened, one-fourth of the world's population was killed at that time. And so you add one-third to that number, and if you're good at doing fractions, you come up with seven-twelves, which means that over half of the world's population is killed. And you can add even more to that number because that doesn't even count all of those that are uh, killed under the other judgments, under the other seals, and under the other trumpets. So death looms in staggering numbers during that time. And there's simply no way that we could gauge the terror that's upon this earth as the pain and suffering comes to every corner of the globe. God's directing it all. God's serious about what he's doing, and there is no one who has the power to stop him. King Nebuchadnezzar, who made those statements about his majesty and his glory in the kingdom, was for his might. He found out who is the mighty one. And when he found out, he came to this conclusion. It's in Daniel 4.35. And all the inhabitants of the earth, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say, what doest thou? And you can add to that statement right there, he also doeth according to his will in the armies of hell. Because God controls all of them. And God uses the armies of hell. And out comes a a number 200,000,000. God wants you to be good at arithmetic. So he's always throwing out these little equations. How many is that? 200,000,000. That's 200 million 200 million of these. No one has ever seen an army like that. So this is an army that's powerful, it's potent, and it's plenty. You know what I like best about this? I mean, there's actually, for me, 
and for all Christians, there's kind of a silver lining behind all that we're talking about here. There is something we can like because Jesus made a very great statement in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus had just been accused of casting out devils by the power of Satan, and he made an awesome statement. He says in Matthew 12, And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? Now, Revelation chapter 9 is a demonstration of that statement. Jesus is using Satan to cast out and to destroy his own kingdom. How does he do that? Well, who are these people that we're talking about? Who's going to be killed? It's people that are in Satan's kingdom. They're they're Christ rejectors. They're followers of Satan. They have part in his kingdom. And the Bible teaches us that all of us are either in one of two kingdoms. We are either in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is a kingdom of light, or we are in the kingdom of Satan, which is the kingdom of darkness. There aren't any other choices. You're in one place or the other. All lost people are in the kingdom of Satan. And what do we see right here? Satan destroying his own people. Satan's destroying his own kingdom. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? That's marvelous. Because what God is doing, he's twisting, he's bending Satan to do his will. He's forcing Satan to destroy his own kingdom. Aren't you glad God lets you read the back of the book? tells us that Satan is not winning here. God is always in control. Satan is going to cry uncle. God's going to get hold of him, and he's going to sing like a canary. So this is a powerful, potent, and plentiful army. Now, the description of them is given in verses 17 to 19. It says, And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, And out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. The demons that we talked about last week in 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 the first part of this chapter, they were an awful looking bunch. Remember that description of them? Teeth like lions and hair like women, iron breastplates and wings. These aren't any better. And it doesn't appear that it's the riders who actually cause the destruction, but it's these strange horses that they're riding on. They're controlling these very strange horses. But we notice here what these these riders are wearing. Breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone. Jacinth has a smoky appearance. And so that sort of goes along with the fire and the brimstone. And what does that sound like? Sounds like hell, doesn't it? Sounds like hell itself. These are riders who come right up out of the pit of hell and they bring with them fire and brimstone. Now we all know what fire is, of course. What's brimstone? Well, brimstone is actually a a stone that's when it's burned, it gives off a sulfuric poisonous gas. And do you remember there was another time when we read about fire and brimstone in the Bible? Wasn't it Sodom and Gomorrah that God destroyed? There was a lot of evil going on there, and God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. 
You know, I wouldn't be surprised if the first place that these riders on these horses go is to San Francisco, California. They come riding into town, and they go right first to Gavin Newsom's house. They, they knock on his door, and they say, got any milk? And that's not a new, t- new too subtle reference to Harvey Milk. You got any milk? And so they'll ask old Gavin there, show us where your buddies live. And old Gavin will try to distance himself from the gays and the lesbians like Bill Clinton did from Monica Lewinsky. I didn't have sex with that woman. Gavin will say, I didn't perform any homosexual marriages. I didn't do that. Fire and brimstone issues out of their mouth. So one-third of the Earth's population is killed by a demon army that is 200 million strong. There's no place for people to hide. And I'll tell you, friend, if you don't know Jesus, there is no place to hide. Judgment is coming. God brings judgment. In the book of Job, you remember, Job had three miserable counselors, four actually in all, who, who tried to help him. And one of them said something that was very profound and turned out it was the truth. Not everything that those counselors told Job were untruths. There was a lot of truth in what they said. They just misapplied it and applied it wrongly to the wrong person. But there was one of them who spoke and, and said something very interesting in Job chapter 34. He's speaking about God, and he says, For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness, no shadow of death, where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he will not lay upon man more than right, that he should enter into judgment with God. He shall break in pieces mighty men without number, and set others in their stead. Therefore... He knoweth their works and overturneth them in the night so that they are destroyed. He striketh them as wicked men in this open sight of others because they turn back from him and would not consider any of his ways. That's the end for these men in tribulation time. They will not consider God's ways. They can't hide from God and God will destroy them. Well, now we come to the last two verses of this chapter. And and to me... This is really the scariest part of the entire chapter. Verse 20 says, And the rest of them which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornications, nor of their thefts. So the fourth thing that we look here is at the abominations. They will not repent. Why why would I say that these verses are the scariest? Well, because it really shows us who is sovereign in salvation. Now, this is not scary to me and you that are saved, not, not in one sense, because we've had eyes that have been opened up to see the truths of God's Word. We we see spiritual works because God has revealed that to us. Paul wrote in first Corinthians chapter two, verses thirteen and fourteen. He says, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You have to have eyes that are opened up by the Holy Spirit of God to see things that are spiritual. And so do you see what's happening here? All of these demons are unleashed, They're going throughout the world wreaking havoc. They're killing right and left. 
God has sent these powerful judgments on the earth in a multitude of ways, and yet through it all, having seen it all, these men still not, would not repent. The men that weren't killed, they still would not repent after having seen all of this. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the human heart is so depraved that God... It's so depraved against God that that man in his natural condition will not come to God. There is no persuasion of any kind that will cause a person to turn to God. The only way that he will is if the Holy Spirit works in his heart to make him willing. God has to open up his eyes to the truth. Do you understand then how foolish it is for, for men to preach sermons? and then spend another 30 minutes in an invitation trying to do what the Word of God and what the Holy Spirit has not done in the time of the preaching of God's Word? That's why God gave us the Word. It's to turn hearts to Him. Now, people are not saved by singing invitations. They're saved by the Holy Spirit working inside of them through the preaching of God's Word. So it's never a preacher's power of persuasion. It is never tear-jerking stories that we tell. None of that will bring the first sinner to Jesus Christ. The only thing that will is when the Holy Spirit works on a person's heart. And so these, these coerced conversions are not real conversions. Emotional responses of people running up and down aisles to do this or that that's not what conversion is about. And, and thank God that he works in spite of those things instead of with those things. Now, some people are saved in long invitations. There's no doubt about that. But they didn't get saved because of an invitation. It's the Word of God that works in a person's heart to cause them to believe. So, what's the point here? Well, the point is that an invitation itself is not needed. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with giving an invitation. I don't think that there is done in the right way. But an invitation is simply not needed. God's Word is sufficient to do what God wants it to do. Singing songs will not change people's hearts. And so the Holy Spirit was saving people for 1,800 years before there was ever the first invitation that was ever sung in a church service. So what makes you think the Holy Spirit would need that kind of thing right now? He doesn't. And do you realize this too? I mean, I'm just giving you a little bit of history of the whole thing here. But invitations actually did not come into being until the gospel was so perverted that preachers were preaching that people are saved by their decisions. They're to saved by a decision-making process rather than the overcoming, overwhelming, regenerating, irresistible grace of God. They went against those doctrines and they instituted an invitation system where it's simply regeneration by a decision that you make. That's not the truth of God's Word. Now today, if you preach the irresistible grace of God from the pulpit, the fundamentalists and the, and the evangelicals will run and hide. They sneer, they go crazy over such things. But the Scripture here is proof that only God can change a heart from unbelief to belief. These men would not repent no matter what they saw. They wouldn't repent no matter what happened. And here's the reason why. Simply because God does not allow them to repent. God is in control of even our repentance and our faith. God does not allow them to repent. God is the one who grants repentance. And the scriptures give us proof of that. If you just listen to what the church of Jerusalem had to say when Peter gave his report of the conversion of Cornelius. 
There in Acts chapter 11, it says, when they heard these things, when that council at Jerusalem, the church there, heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. That tells us that God is sovereign in salvation and sovereign in the salvation of each and every soul. And I would challenge you to search the Scriptures and find one place in the Word of God where either Jesus or the apostles said that salvation comes by man's decision-making processes. The Bible always teaches that salvation is the divine initiative of God. That's how people are saved. So people repent and people believe only where God allows it. The Apostle John wrote in John chapter 1, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Listen to verse 13. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here's what you get then from these last two verses. Preaching, plagues, but no penitence. 144,000 sealed faithful witnesses preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, but there is no repentance. There is no salvation. Wars, famines, disasters, demons, death, but there is no salvation. And it doesn't come because God does not allow it. Now, folks, that is frightening. That's what I mean by frightening. It's frightening because any person that's sitting here tonight without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ should be frightened. You should be frightened. And for the first time in your life, you need to realize you are not the one who's in control. God is in control. And it should be frightening because I can preach till midnight. It won't be a two-hour sermon, but I could preach till midnight. I could preach with as much persuasion, as much pleading as I possibly could. We can sing all the verses of just as I am multiple times. We can do all of that, and that will not save a single solitary sinner unless God is gracious enough to grant repentance and faith. So what do you do? Now, uh, this leaves us in a, in a dilemma, doesn't it? What do you do? I mean, what are you going to do in preaching? What do you tell people to do? If, if I can't do anything to save myself, if my faith comes from God, if my repentance comes from God, then what am I to do? And do you know the answer to the question? I gave it a few minutes ago. You do exactly as the publican did. You say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the only way a person ever gets saved. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's what you cry out when you realize all of this. I hope you see how that fits in perfectly with what we've been studying about the Sermon on the Mount. When a person realizes his spiritual bankruptcy, he has no place to go. He has no other thing to plead but the mercy of God. And so he throws himself on God's mercy. It says, Yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their fornication, nor of their thefts. God does not allow them to repent. Now here, we're reading at a time that repentance is over with. God's grace, God's mercy is over with for these men upon the earth. And friends, that is a horrible, frightening thought. Now, the Scripture says in Zephaniah chapter 3, The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. And so for people who cry and say, Well, that's just not fair. It's not fair 
for God to shut things up. It's not fair not to allow them to repent, to see all of this and not come to Christ. It's simply not fair. God's not interested in fairness because God is the one who sets the standard. And God says he will not allow them to repent. And the word of God said right here, we've just read, God will never do unjustly. God is the one who is the lawmaker. He's the lawgiver. And so certainly God has the right to say how he enforces those laws and what those laws mean. God is never unjust. Now here's what the psalmist wrote. He said, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in thy faithfulness hath afflicted me. You know who said that? That was David. David said this, and he was a saved man. And he says, Lord, you're right to afflict me. How much more is God right to afflict the unrighteous, those that are lost? I mean, how much more right does God have to do that? And so right now, here is the situation that we're in. We are living in a day of grace. God has not shut up the gospel to any person. God has not said that you, you, or you, or you, you cannot be saved tonight. God never said that. God is telling us now that you may repent. He graciously will allow you to repent. He'll work in your heart for repentance. And we preach that. We preach that men can repent. Men can believe because God sovereignly works in their hearts. And if you pray and ask God for it, God grants that. The terror of hell is as real now as it ever will be. And so hell, at this point, does not have to be a destination for anyone. In these times that we're reading about, hell is unavoidable. Hell is the destination because God will not allow that repentance. But it's not so today. God allows it. And so hell does not have to be a destination for any person here. So right now, what does God do? He allows you to repent. And I would suggest to you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the thing for you to do right now is to plead for the mercy of God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spent together in your word. There are great truths that we can draw out of this, Lord, if we... Look to find what's there and look to see what you're doing. You're in control of all. Nothing escapes your all-seeing eye. Lord, help people to realize that tonight, that they will not escape your judgment. They must repent and believe the gospel now while you allow it. It may be very soon that Jesus comes back, maybe even tonight. And when that happens, all these things begin to be set in motion. And thank thank you, Lord, that you now grant repentance and faith. So I ask you, Lord, to work in someone's heart today. If they're not saved, would you draw them to you? May they believe and be forever saved and never have to worry about such things as we talked about tonight. Bless in this invitation time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.